Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guest will be Maureen D. Lee, who has written a biography entitled Ciceretta Jones, The Greatest Singer of Her Race, 1868-1933. It's the biography of a young African-American woman who became one of the most noted concert singers and divas of the late 19th and early 20th century. We'll have that conversation with Maureen D. Lee, but first, your NPR News Break. With me in the Scanner studio today is Maureen D. Lee, who has written a biography of an interesting individual. It's entitled Ciceretta Jones, The Greatest Singer of Her Race, 1868 to 1933. And Maureen, welcome to the journal. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Well, let's start off a little bit about you. You're not a native South Carolinian, but you've been here off. I shouldn't say an awfully long time. You've been here a while. I have been here a while. I've been here 29 years. Okay. But you grew up in Rhode Island, which is, we think about people from New York and whatever, but Rhode Island's a little place. I know. And it's amazing how many times I'll run into someone in South Carolina who's from Rhode Island, especially (laughs) if I wear a Rhode Island t-shirt. Okay. And so how'd you get to South Carolina? Well, through a first marriage, I I went from Rhode Island to Chicago to Oklahoma to South Carolina, and then in my second marriage, I'm staying right here in South Carolina. Okay. And you you worked at Clemson in community relations or public relations for a while? Yeah, I work for a child and family research center up there doing um, uh, writing and editing for them. And I know you now live in, in the Columbia area, and you're very involved in the book business. Yes, my husband and I have Lee's Book Attic here in Columbia. You handle used rare books? Yeah, used out of print, South Carolina. Um, We focus on autograph fiction. Maureen, you've written this biography called Ciceretta Jones, The Greatest Singer of Her Race, 1868 to 1933. Why did you use that subtitle? Um, I used it because it was on the theater poster um, that's at the Library of Congress. And the other thing I wanted to be able to do with that when I was writing the title was to let people know that she was African American and to let people know how great she was. And that seemed like the best way was to take the quote right from the... But it also is an indicate, don't you think, an indication of the times. I mean, Adelina Patti was not called the greatest Spanish singer in, yes. or the greatest European singer. In other words, she was not segregated. And that was a term used by African Americans as well in the reviews. Oh, it was. It but, was. But it's also, a, a, again, a reflection of a segregated America. Oh, it is. And when you read some of the um, the uh, critics' re- things, they would they would talk about her looks, how she, you know, she wasn't too black. She she was black with a little blue luster, or she was light uh, in complexion. Or they would talk about her teeth, how they were the despair of dentistry and the envy of her white sisters. So she had to put up with a lot. That's part of the era. It is, and I, and that's what I think you have to understand when readers read it um, now that they have to put it in that historical context of what it was like in those days. And when we we've changed and evolved so much from from those days. I love the opening sentence of your book. The subject found you, and not the other way around. And that's quite a story, a serendipitous occasion that you had back home in Rhode Island. So let's tell our listeners about that. Well, about 10 years ago, I was getting ready to retire from Clemson University, and I went back up to Rhode Island to visit my family. At the time, my mom was alive, and my brother and my two sisters are there. My brother was working for the city of Providence, and they were going to have a a big exhibit um, about history in Rhode Island and some little-known facts that people, you know, had just didn't know. And one of the exhibits was going to be about Ciceretta Jones. And I saw a picture of her and learned a little about her, and I just was absolutely fascinated. She just, you know, took my heart, and I wanted to to find out more about her. And wasn't it he had some of her gowns? 
Yeah, the Rhode Island Black Heritage Society has two of her gowns, and at the time, they were in really good shape. They're now being restored, and they were going to exhibit those. And so that was that was the beginning of, what, about a six- or eight-year process? Yeah, it took from start to finish nine years from the time I came up with the idea to the time that USC uh, Press published it. Well, let's talk a little bit about Ciceretta Jones. For people, black or white, who grew up in the United States, in the South, certainly up until about World War I, probably would have heard about her. Yes. She um, w- was very famous in her day. She sang throughout the United States. In fact, in the lower 48 states, she hit all but South Dakota or Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she actually sang on the stage in Columbia, Orangeburg. Charleston. In fact, her first visit to the state was in Charleston. And then she, um, the Columbia Theater that used to be across the street from the State House at the corner of Maine and Gervais, she was one of the first African-American groups to sing at, at that new theater that opened in 1900, December of 1900. Maureen, we're calling her Ciceretta, but some people, if they looked at it, Deep South might call her Ciceretta because that's actually the way it's spelled. Yes, it is. And I, and I don't think because no, none of us really know exactly how she pronounced it. Um, I, I've more commonly heard it called Ciceretta, but it could be, as as you say, in the South, we stretched out the, the words, and in the North, they clipped the words. So. Well, and although she was born in, in, in Virginia, she grew up in Rhode Island, and that she made Providence her home. She did. She, um, I, we think she was born in uh, 1868. No one has found a birth certificate, um, but piecing together census records and the and her other family members when they were born, um, we've determined it's probably 1868. And in 19 in 1876, she moved to Rhode Island when she was eight years old and stayed there for the remainder of her life. She married early. She did. She um, married at 15, and they had a child uh, about seven or eight months later. And and the child died tragically. Yes. The child was two years old and died, and uh, it, it really devastated her. But I think after that, she really began to focus more on her music um, after that loss. How did she? Well, she really began her, her career as many 19th century singers did, and particularly African-Americans. It began in the church. It did. When she was young, she was in a Sunday school program, and she kind of wowed everybody at the, at the uh, program. And one of the ladies said to her mother, she sings so beautifully, she needs to have um, voice training. And she did get some early voice training um, in Rhode Island. We don't know how she paid for it. We don't really know too much about, you know, who gave it to her. But it did help her as she began to develop. She always liked to have what we would say serious music in her repertoire from opera uh, or operettas or religious music like Ave Maria, not what we would think of as traditional folk music or ballads or what have you. She always wanted to sing the more formal classical as well as the popular music. Yes, she did. Um, She, you know, just seemed to love and and be attracted to that. And, you know, it could have been that in her lifetime, Adelina Patti, um, she did say one time that she had heard Adelina Patti, who was a great European opera star. She had heard her sing, and it brought her to tears. And so this may have had some influence um, in in what she wanted to do. Well, in fact, for part of, and I'm going to call her Sissy Retta, I'm going to do the Southern. I'm going to call her Sissy Rada. <laughs> um, she was known as the Black Patty. And interestingly, Adelina Patty's performances included always a mixture of the serious and whatever, the, something from the local top 40, which might be Home Sweet Home or Way Down Upon the Swanee River. So it's an interesting juxtaposition to open something with Ava Maria and then end it with Swanee River actually became Sissy Retta's theme song. It was. It was It was truly her signature song. The, the first time that I found any evidence of when she sang it was at the White House um, at a luncheon that she uh, performed for President Benjamin Harrison and his family. And then the, after that, almost every concert that you would see a review in the newspaper mentioned she either did it as part of the concert or she did it as an encore. 
Okay. Let's go back to getting her career started. She sort of discovered as a teenager, and she begins to have some kind of training. And then how does she vault from singing in churches and the local fraternal group benefits, that sort of thing, to a major star? First of all, she did have a little bit more training. Uh, she went to either the Boston Conservatory of Music or the New England Conservatory of Music or was privately tutored by someone up in that area. So she had probably a good year of um, continuing to do local concerts and gaining more experience. In 1888, she had a chance, um, a, a manager from a major uh, New York entertainment company heard her and called up uh his boss, and he said, see if you can hire her. And she went for an audition in New York, and she was hired, and off she went the next day to the West Indies, which we call the Caribbean today, of course, and South America with an all-black troupe, and they were there for probably about eight, nine months and sang all over that part of the world. It's interesting that it was an all-black troupe, because the Caribbean, except for Haiti, still was a colonial area. And so as she was singing in a theater, her audiences were mixed white and black. They were. And up until this point, she had been used to singing, of course, just for black audiences in, in her local community. She went off to that part of the world, um, had wonderful experiences there, came back you know, more polished and experienced. She was here for another short time in the United States, and then the next thing you know, she, she, her husband and a reporter who had worked for one of the black newspapers, they had a troupe, and they went back to the West Indies and South America. So now this time, she was led by black managers and with an all-black troupe before it had been a white manager that had managed, and they were successful. And on the cover of your book is a, a very striking portrait she is wearing looks like a dozen or so medals, and these came from governments. And, and on this set, it was on this second tour when she began to receive her first medals from governments in South America. Yeah, she did. Uh, she got these medals. They would give them um, to thank her, and as an honor, she got that and jewelry. I mean, she really did quite well, and she was proud of these medals. And uh, for the early part of her career, even when she came back to the United States. She would get up on the stage on the top of her dress, the bodice of her dress, and it would have all these medals pinned to her chest, um, and off she would go and, and sing. Her second tour, very successful in the Caribbean and South America, almost two years. We've already mentioned Adelina Patti. When she traveled, she did the same. She came from Europe. She spent a year or two in the United States. She played South Carolina before the Civil War, big concert in Charleston. But she's in South America, then she comes back to the United States, and the black press has picked up notice of her, and she's really become something of a diva. She has, and yet she still wasn't famous enough in the United States, but the major turning thing that happened, and again, thanks to her husband, who did turn out to be a ne'er-do-well, but at the time... He got her a position as the star soprano of a grand, they called it a three-day Grand Negro Jubilee at Madison Square Garden. And all these important people in, in New York came, white people, black people, and she sang, and she absolutely wowed them. She she just left them all talk, all the press. It was amazing. <laughs> in At Madison Square Garden, it was a mixed-race audience. Yes, it was. I read your account of that, and yes, she got rave reviews. The show itself didn't get such good reviews. No, it didn't. <laughs> but I, I think it's interesting, and it, again, the times, and you deal with this very sensitively, how people report, you know, a grand Negro jubilee. It was to have black folks entertain primarily white folks, but they did almost minstrel kind of, of entertainment. And one of the big chorus lines, if you will, was, a cakewalk. And why don't you talk about what a cakewalk was? Well, a cakewalk, um, I've seen some pictures. It, in Ciceretta's day, by the, the cakewalk had evolved to where couples would get dressed up in these wonderful costumes, the beautiful dress and silk hats, and they would parade around the stage as a couple dancing. 
and there, it would be a contest. And at the end, the audience would applaud for whichever they would sometimes in this one, they'd hold up a sign as to which city they were representing and they'd applaud to see who got the cake. And this supposedly had evolved out of slave culture where dancing was done on the plantations and who did the best dancing got a prize from the master. That's right. And sometimes, um, you know, it's been suggested that it, that the uh, black folks who were doing the dancing, it was a parody of their white masters. <laughs> well, having seen some pictures of that, the grand costumes, in some cases, the um, interesting and intricate steps, yes, they could very easily have been mimicking the big, the big house. The big house didn't realize it. That's right. Exactly. So she's in New York. She's She gets... Tremendous press, not just the African-American press. I need to explain to our audience, when you say an African-American press, in most of the major northern cities, and I include Baltimore as part of that, Baltimore, New York, Chicago, Pittsburgh, there were major newspapers devoted specifically to African-American audiences. And they were national in scale. And you say, how was that done? Railroads. People forget that little towns in South Carolina were major crossroads for railroad trains, and those newspapers came down every day or every week on the trains and were distributed throughout South Carolina and the South by African-American newsmen. And that was such a, a critical um, part in Ciceretta's development of, of her fame because had it not been for the black press – who had stories about her and spread her fame, you know, from north to south to east to west. I mean, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have the radio. We didn't have TV. We, we just didn't have those, those means of communication. The one thing that the Jubilee in Madison Square Garden did is she began to attract the attention of the white press she as did. well. So she had done a – in country music today, they'd say she got a crossover audience and certainly in terms of public relations. The major newspapers in New York reviewed her and reviewed her glowingly. Yes, they did. And I mean, you think New York Times. Well, sure enough, I mean, her name was in the, in the New York Times. The other thing that happened that grew out of that concert, um, and, and years later, of course, she said, I woke up famous after my singing at the Garden, and I didn't even know it because it just took that long for mm -hmm. it to develop. But what happened after that concert is she started getting more concert engagements, um, and she got uh, people approaching her to be her manager. And a very major person in the management field at that time, made, they called him Major, Major James B. Pond, who was managing folks like Charles Dickens and Mark Twain, he approached Ciceretta and signed her to a contract. And that was not a happy relationship. No. Um, I think, you know, you, you wish for something and you've got to be careful what you wish for. And um, he did help advance her career, you know, wonderfully. But they had some rocky road there. Ended up in court. Yes, they did. They had quite a court case that went. Yeah. Well, when we talk about concerts, I know people are jumping ahead to the 20th century and thinking vaudeville. But she was booked for a concert tour for sometimes one night stands, sometimes several nights, and it would be advertised ahead of time and tickets sold. And that's exactly what it was, a several-hour performance. It was. And, and she, you know, Major Pond was smart in that he knew there would be difficulty with her doing a concert performing with white Americans on the same stage. And so what he did was get European musicians and singers to share the stage with her, and that went on fine. And so she did many concerts, Saratoga Springs, you know, where they the the rich folks had come to spend the summer and go to horse races and um, you know take baths in the in the water there, and you know they they just loved her. She she was big there. In fact, she her season went from late August to May, and then she took the the summer off and went home to Providence, took care of her mama. Yep. And rest it up. But it usually began at a place like Saratoga Springs, yeah, a big white resort. And then it went, depending upon the year, could be all across the country. I mean, I've looked at her schedule. You, you publish. We academics love appendices to <laughs> books. 
And you have an appendix for her 1901-1902 tour. And it starts out at the Academy of Music in Newburgh, New York. Then she quickly goes to Saratoga. Then she moves south to Charlottesville, Virginia, Raleigh, Charlotte, Greenville, Spartanburg, Atlanta, Columbia, Macon, Birmingham. Then she goes from Birmingham to Chattanooga, Indiana, Chicago, St. Cloud, Minnesota. It's that railroad again. (laughs) Well, that's important. Then slips over to Winnipeg, Canada, Fargo, North Dakota. And we're getting into wintertime, and she's in Fargo, North Dakota. (laughs) (laughs) You know, then she goes out to the West Coast, to Seattle, back into Canada, down into California, almost December, all in California. And she had a very lengthy session in San Francisco, including over New Year's, which that must have been a real premier engagement. In February, she's in Utah. Then she's Missouri, Oklahoma. Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Tennessee, West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and she closes out in Atlantic City and New York City. Now, folks, I didn't even mention all of the stops. I mean, it's it's well over 100. Mm-hmm. And she literally is crisscrossing the country and dipping up into Canada, and it's because where the railroads are. Exactly. But I should tell you that that schedule that you just looked at, you know, her her career spanned two parts. She had the concert years that ran from about 1888 to um, 1896. And then halfway through 1896, she had come back from Europe and she couldn't get in, you know, as many concert engagements. She switched her career somewhat. She had two white managers approach her about being the star of an all-black troupe called the Black Paddy Troubadours. And she would only sing opera in that in the third act. And that is when she started going, like, across the country, you know, seven seven different cities in a week. And, and that's how that developed. Okay. So from the time of her big debut at Madison Square Garden, her national debut, for the next how many years she was on the concert circuit? Yeah, um, she did uh, until 1896. You know, she say, she was one of the first African-American women to sing at Carnegie Hall. She went back to Madison Square Garden and sang. Um, Antonine Dvorak was here, and she sang a concert that he directed. She went to the um, Chicago World's Fair, the Columbia Exposition. She did those kinds of things. And then in 1896 is, is when her – and she went to Europe, actually, for nine nine uh, months. And then when she came back, that's when she started. And while she was in Europe, she had some very special requests for con- private concerts. She did. Um, she sang – well, actually, she sang in, in a public concert before um, the uh, Prince Edward, before he became the, the king. And in addition to appearing before the Prince of Wales, future King Edward – uh, Edward the Seventh, she was asked by his brother, the Duke of Cambridge, to give a private concert. And once again, she's getting gifts, being showered with roses. That evidently, at concerts, people would just dozens of roses would be brought to the stage. Yeah, they loved uh, giving her those flowers. And in fact, she said in in later in years that her. Um, concert that she gave at London's Covent Garden was probably the highlight of her career. She said that the women, after she finished singing, took flowers from their corsages and threw them on the stage. Wow. Now, the way she dressed, the style, that was that was part of her persona. And I, I see these wonderful photographs that you've got in your book scattered throughout, not just formal portraits. And she was obviously being asked to pose for formal portraits on many occasions. But you also have posters and kind of advertising images as as well. But I look at her in these Victorian gowns. And I can't – were those worth gowns by any chance? It looks to me like they were almost Parisian. They were so lavish. That they could have been. I mean, she, as you say, that's that was part of her persona. She just wore beautiful, elegant gowns, and she loved jewelry. Many of those pieces, I'm sure, were gifts that she'd earned over the years. But she, and I think that was something that when she went into sing, like say she came to Columbia, the African Americans who um, were relegated to the gallery to watch her. They had to have been so proud of someone who was dressed in a refined, elegant costume with with beautiful jewelry. That would have been 
the way she was on the concert tour. You say in the in the late eighteen nineties, her career takes a, a different track. It it did, and and yet she still dressed that way, I believe, because it, when when she started with this troupe, that it was it started out, it was a three part format that's very similar to a minstrel show. And the the first part would be a farce comedy, and the other members of the cast would sing and do the comedy. And then the middle part was a vaudeville olio. And now, what's an olio? It, it's a mid, just a mid part, and that's where variety acts would come. You'd have hoop twirlers and roller skaters and um, singers and songs. And then the third act was called the operatic kaleidoscope. And so she would come out with other members of her cast, and she would sing operatic pieces, and that's when she would be dressed in these beautiful gowns. And later on, as her career developed, they even um, changed it. And in that scene, they would do like HMS Pinafore. They did a miniature version of HMS Pinafore and had everybody um, enacting their parts and had sets that made it look like they were on the, the deck of a ship. But the troupe was named for her. It was. It was. The Black Patty Troubadours. Yes. And later, um, when the, her two managers split, it became the Black Patty Musical Comedy Company. And when the split came, you know, all throughout this whole period between 1896 and when she left the stage um, in 1915, black entertainment had continued to develop. People, African-Americans who wanted to be in show business after the Civil War had nothing to do but turn to minstrelsy, which they did. And, and what makes this different is before the Civil War, minstrel shows were white folks in blackface. After the Civil War, they're African-American performers. Yes, and they, they would do this. And in fact, some of them even would put burnt cork on their face, which was ridiculous, you know, but... They had to continue the, the tradition of the minstrel show, and yet, because they were doing it, they were being paid, they started having their own black minstrel companies, and in fact, it became, it, it took away from white minstrel companies because people really wanted to see African-American um, minstrel companies. But then, as time went on, things evolved, and they left that, and, and ragtime music came along, and that helped change things and freed things up. And, and then, of course, it evolved even more. And so these comedies that started out as just making fun of African-Americans and farcical kind of things, they would develop and get storylines and become more like a musical comedy, working more toward it like a Broadway show kind of thing. Well, I was going to say in the last decade of her performance, they had like three-act plays um, they actually got it down to two, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they did. And she actually had a speaking part, and you know, which was amazing because when she first started, she only sang, and then they they had it more of a, a show. But then she would only still sing in the show, and then toward the latter part of her career, she had learned from watching, I guess, the others how to act and walk and speak and and just be a regular part of the show. We need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that. This is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking to Maureen D. Lee about her biography of Sissy Retta Jones. In terms of her performance, one of the things that you dealt with is how African Americans were perceived and portrayed, even by African Americans, on on the stage. And I'm looking here at a, a song that she sang, My Gal is a Highborn Lady. Yeah, she didn't sing that. One of the people in her show did. One of the, but it's in dialect. Now, did she sing in dialect? I believe she did. Um, and, and I say this because Swanee River, I would periodically find in these reviews, they would talk about her enunciation and how it was so clear, and they would mention something of the dialect. Now, I don't know if she carried that through throughout her career. But I do think in the beginning when she was singing Swanee River, she did sing it in dialect. You mentioned this three-part show, and you've, you've got a program here. I just opened open to that. The opening skit, the Honolulu dance, Hododoo Man, Roxy Ann Dooley, Throughout the Lifeline, Hello My Baby, Babes from Boston Town. Now, one of the things that came out at, in the late 1890s and the early 20th century 
were what were called the coon songs. And today we understand that's very, you know, very derogatory. In fact, by the time she left the stage, African Americans were very sensitive about. Uh, it came out of ragtime. It did. And one of her songwriters wrote a wrote a song which he later regretted. And I think we can talk about that just briefly because okay. he he was an integral part of her troupe for years. He was. Um, the the ragtime music, as you said, uh, evolved, and people loved the syncopated rhythms. But when they started putting lyrics to it, and this particular gentleman who worked for her, Ernest Hogan, um, he he was well known in his own right. But he wrote a song called "All Coons Look Alike to Me," and the words to the song were not offensive at all. But it was the title, and that you know just. White people were attracted to it, and it, it and it it was just terrible. But he later regretted that he did it. But it launched this whole series of not single handedly. There were other songs, of course, but they made their way into Broadway, and um, African Americans sang them, white people sang them, and then there was a concerted effort later on as things progressed to by the black press and the black middle class to do away with those kinds of, of songs and that type of music. Well, there was a so-called coon song in the opening skit. We're talking about our three-part shows now. And then in the Olio, which is that vaudeville second act, if you will, had a grand cake walk. But again, the, the racial terms used to some of the, some of the, the actions, the Cinegambian sylphs, the ebony ecstasies, the ragtime buck dance, that's part of the era. It is, and I, and that's what I think you have to understand when readers read it um, now that they have to put it in that historical context of what it was like in those days. And we we've changed and evolved so much from from those days. But. And we need to remember that this is an all black troupe that is performing this, and it's not just for Southern folks. It is. In this case, an international troupe because she almost every year her black patty troubadours cross the international boundary and go into Canada. Exactly. And one time they went to Cuba. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, I'd say a majority of her tours are outside the South. She does come in the South, but she plays the Midwest on a regular basis. It's only in her later years that she stays east of the Mississippi, and that's because travel expenses were getting so so high. Yeah, that's true. And and. You know, and it, theirs were not – her troop was not the only troop. I mean, there were other black troops, and this was common across all the black troops until there started to be this pressure. Um, and, and you can thank, you know, the black press and then the black – there were a couple of black theater critics and then the black composers. Um, and that, you also you also have in the first decade of the 20th century the founding of the, of the NAACP yes. and national black women's groups. And that also had an impact on the portrayal of African Americans on, on the stage, particularly by African Americans. So things evolved, and by the end of her career, her troupe and others, things like the so-called coon songs had begun to disappear from their repertoire. Yes, yes, they did. But the plays that they did, there was still, to modern eyes and ears, there's something still stereotypical about a Maureen. Yeah. One is is called In the Jungles, and this is the storyline for that. Members of a Baptist missionary society were interested in a young woman who had been lost in the jungles of Africa for years. The members of the organization found her later living with the jungle natives who have made her their queen. Obviously, that's the role for Sissy Retta. Right? <laughs> uh, eventually, she's brought back home by a confidence man, a lawyer detective, and the detective's valet, whose name is Count de Rocky Ford. Uh, the jungle scene was set in Zambesia, a village home of the fictional Gumbala tribe in Central Africa. Now, by the time she finishes, she's in the Philippines, but it's still a native, if you want to put native in quotes, setting. Yes. And, you know, the, and that, as I said, went on for years in many of the, the African-American troops until, you know, this is pre-Harlem Renaissance. Um, 
things really began to change rapidly, I yeah. think, at that point. She did have special, even when she was doing her, her troupe, she still sometimes had special performances in Harlem, for example. Yes, she sang at, at the theater there and did, um, you know, concert work there. Yeah. Now, you have done an incredible amount of digging in local press to get reviews and what have you. Did you find anything in the Orangeburg paper or the Columbia newspaper? You found references in Minnesota and Seattle, but there's not much reporting in the Southern press about her. When I was doing the book, I had, you know, I had to think of her in the broader sense, um, and so that's why I got things from all over the country. Since then, um, I have started doing local research and found lots of things in local newspapers. And, and now that I have my blog on my webpage, it allows me to go and write things about Sister Etta in South Carolina, which I haven't done yet, and other places. But, for example, in the state newspaper on December the fifteenth, nineteen hundred. Cicerata was coming to Columbia, and so they weren't, really weren't sure about what, how they were going to handle having the black people come and hear her sing. And they had in the newspaper this quote, Inasmuch as the better class of Negroes are so anxious to hear this celebrated troupe, it was deemed simple justice to allow them the privilege, and hence the balcony has been set aside for them. The white people are no less anxious to see Black Patty, and they can get downstairs seats for balcony prices for this attraction, which is said to be very fine. So she came, and she played, and she came back year after year. Well, five years later, they'd figured out at the Columbia Theater that more African Americans wanted to see the show than than white uh, people wanted to see the show, and there was more room downstairs for them than there was upstairs. So they reversed the, the seating arrangements, and they said, for this performance, African Americans will be seated downstairs, whites will be seated in the balcony. No whites came to that performance. Now, in subsequent years, they worked out different arrangements, and it was back to being both black and white. Well, and there was an incident in Florida, was it in? St. Augustine. In, in St. Augustine, where, because the demand for African American tickets was such that they were going to seat African-Americans in the in the orchestra. Right. And the ushers went on strike. They went on strike. The white, white ushers went on strike. <laughs> they did. And it said, I think they said when they told the ushers um, what the arrangements were going to be, that their faces were the almost the color of, of diversity because they apparently all got worked up about it. And they didn't show up. So they called the board, the managers uh, called the board of directors to come to the theater and said, what are we going to do? And they talked about it for a while, and finally the board of directors said, well, we'll have to be the ushers for the evening. So they did, and the African-American patrons came, and the white board of directors seated them. Everybody was a little uneasy about the whole thing, but it went off great. The concert was wonderful. They brought in more money that night than they had previously. And, um, you know, the ushers, they, they said it was going to be the degeneracy of the South if they uh, seated them. But it all worked out fine. Well, it, you know, it's interesting when you mentioned the Columbia Theater Opera House, which used to be on the corner of Maine and Gervais, before the old Wade Hampton. It was demolished for the old Wade Hampton Hotel, <laughs> which we all remember when it was imploded several decades mm-hmm. ago. Given the onset of Jim Crow, which had, in South Carolina had just come in the late 1890s, people don't realize that it started right. here very late. And in fact, one of the areas that had remained open and integrated from Reconstruction to the 1890s had been theaters. And in Charleston and in Columbia, it was not unusual to have patrons of different races sitting in the same sections. That, of course, changed 1896. Jim Crow comes in. We have a new constitution, 1895. Thank you, Ben Tillman. And segregation of all aspects of public life became a reality almost overnight. And letting the African-Americans, giving them the privilege, as the state newspaper said, <laughs> of coming to a program, they got the balcony. And there are all sorts of historical references there. That's in churches, the balconies had been set aside for the slave population to keep them from being on the floor with the, the white congregation. Well, it was interesting, too. In doing my research, I saw the development of black theaters that had black managers, and in fact, over in Athens, Georgia, um, at the Morton Theater, which still exists today, we went over and visited um, last summer, 
And it's wonderful. And it was um, built by an African-American businessman, and they use it for community events. But the theater is beautiful, and African-Americans, of course, sat down on the main floor, and they put white folks who wanted to come and see the show up, up in the balcony. Well, of course, Columbia, famous nightclub in what had been the old Jewish synagogue, the Big Apple, famous for its dances. Mm -hmm. It was an African-American nightclub, and if whites wanted to come, they couldn't dance, but they could come to the balcony and watch. And watch, yeah. Now, you say that black, it was actually a theater. It wasn't a movie. It actually was a... Right. It, it was a theater. And, and, and as you said, the word uh, movie, that, that helped to bring about, I think, the demise uh, of Ciceretta's group and, and other groups as the movie theaters started to come along. And then they had cheap vaudeville, and um, it just took away the, the road shows, um, you know, of her time. Well, we've got her now, the Black Patty Troubadours, and then it became... The Black Patty Musical Comedy Company. And she's on the road until almost World War One. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she finished the Troubadours last, or, or it was the Black Patty Musical Comedy Company, by then the last time they played was in Memphis in 1914. They, they finished up in the... The manager couldn't pay his bills, and the um, African-American owner of the theater there attached the private rail car that they traveled in, and that was it. That was the end of the show. Okay. You say the private rail car. So this troupe had its own private rail car all this time. Um, they did. I, I think they got it probably in about 1897, 1898, and for the rest of the time, it really helped deal with all the accommodations issues that they would have, particularly when they played, and they were in the South and the Southwest a great deal. And they lived on the car. They carried their equipment. They had their own cook. They had their own porter. Um, and it was a, apparently a, a fairly comfortable place for them to be. Well, you mentioned the Southern accommodations because, of course, the the great civil rights case, that you know, Plessy versus Ferguson was on the segregation of railroads in Louisiana. And so taking care of black patrons on the train once they crossed into the into the southern states and some midwestern states oh, too sure. would have been an issue but they had their own car so in essence they were they were self segregated but that was because of for protection and and convenience yes yes and and they had you know far more comfortable accommodations on their own private rail rail car yeah. than they would have in the other part of the train now, now, who was managing her troubadours and then her musical theater? Um, Rudolph Vogel, who was about a year older, I think, than Ciceretta. Um, he was her manager. There was another gentleman, John Nolan, that was his partner when they had the troubadours. And when they split and Vogel continued on with her till the end of her career with the Black Patty Musical Comedy Company. You start tracing the sort of decline of not just her show, but of other troops, black troops and white performing groups as well, beginning about 1910, 1911. And you've got two competitions. One of them's vaudeville and the other is the movies. Yeah, the movies, you know, they started when they started with the silent movies. People people began to want to see different things and they wanted things to move along a little quicker. And they moved along a little quicker in the movies, and they moved along a little quicker, I guess, in, in vaudeville. Um, and they, the entertainment just changed. It's interesting to, to watch the changing reviews because her champions in the black press began to say, you know, she needs a better vehicle. She needs a better place. She, this, it's kind of tired. It is. And, they, and, you know, they would still say she was wonderful and she was magnificent. It wasn't her fault. But her managers needed to come up with something. This old format that had worked so well for all these years, people were tired of it. They wanted something new. It just sort of, that's showbiz. I mean, <laughs> I mean, today, if you read what's going on in 2013, the major networks are trying to figure what they can do to reclaim audiences. Nothing that they put out this past season seemed to grab anybody. A cable show of all had the largest demographics for that wonderful group, 18 to 49, uh, of, of anybody. And they're, they're just trying to adjust. I mean, the music industry, I mean, it's all changing. Yeah. But it has happened before. Yes, it has. I mean, you can, like you say, you see that common theme all throughout time, how things have changed. 
In writing this biography, you faced a challenge like many writers. She didn't leave you a diary. She didn't, and I had a number of folks tell me that I wouldn't be able to do it, but I was determined. Somebody said I should write fiction, and I thought, no, I'm, I'm going to piece together and at least see what her life was like. And thanks to all the newspapers that are out there, you know, it. when we started, my husband John helped me, and when we started, we would, just had microfilm to deal with. Um, oh, bless your eyesight. Oh, we spent probably three and a half, four years on microfilm, days and days and days at the USC library. And then things started to get digitized. I remember when the New York Times was digitized, what a wonderful thing that was. And I had someone who had that ProQuest, and they did a, a digital search for me. And now more and more, and especially through the Library of Congress, Newspapers are um, – there's a, an effort with the National Humanities Council to bring digitized versions of newspapers from around the country. And so it's becoming so much easier for people to do research than when we started. <laughs> and you found a great collection certainly of artifacts in Washington. Yes. Howard University – when Ciceretta died – her neighbor, who was also a former president of the local NAACP and a real estate agent, he was kind of her benefactor. He watched out for her in her declining years. And when she died, he became um, the executor of her will. And he had um, some of her things. And as he got older, he was worried that he they would be lost and no one would ever know what to do with them. So he gave them to Dr. Carl Gross, who was an African-American physician who was very interested in black history. He took care of them for a while, and then he donated them to Howard University. And you can go to Howard and see her scrapbook and three of her medals and some pictures. And the scrapbook is, is something she kept herself. She did. And what it consists of are newspaper clippings. And unfortunately, she wasn't good about getting the date and the page and all those things that researchers would love to have. So it's, it was kind of a puzzle to put that figure that out. Too. Well, did, you, did she identify the town like this was from Chicago? or You had to get that from reading the, the, the article. And, you know, there's about 80 pages, and they were kind enough – thank goodness, to Xerox it for me so I could take it home and cut it apart and piece it together and do other research to try and figure out where a particular clipping came from and, and ones that had significance. Well, there's no body of work of hers. You've done this all from the outside. You, you have recreated this musical career from the public record. I did, and I had a little bit of help. Um, her, A very, very distant relative of hers, Willia Daughtry, wrote her dissertation um, on Ciceretta in, back in the 60s. And so I read that, and then in the, um, I think 2001, maybe she did a privately published uh, uh, version of that. And so I had that to work with. There were things, there were, there were inconsistencies and things that I found that were different than what she had said, but it gave me an outline to start with. And then I had to fill in, and, and John and I went through two African-American newspapers methodically during the years that she performed on the stage. And, and what were those two? The New York Age and the Indianapolis Freeman. Okay. And so that we would sit there and just look for her name or something. And it was really, when we were doing the research, it was fun because we'd see all these wonderful stories about Ben Tillman in South Carolina. We had to make ourselves not go and read them because they'd have <laughs> these pictures of, of Ben Tillman looking fire and stuff. And we'd have to just say, no, we've got to keep on with what we're doing. <laughs> Maureen, you, you, you have the historian's disease. <laughs> you're, you're, you're looking for something and you find something else. I hope you took down references. That's something that George, the late George Rogers told me because he would get, when I was his research assistant on the Lawrence papers, he sent me to look for something. And I said, well, I found this other thing. He said, did you write it down? I said, no. He said, write it down and put it away. You never know when that will be useful. Well, when I began to write my history in 1995, ah. I had a four-drawer file cabinet full of those little notes that I had just been on another mission, and I found something interesting, and I filed it away. So as you continue your research and your your blog, if you find something else, you may not be interested in Ben Tillman, but it may, be an it may be an incredible reflection on South Carolina in the 1890s and the, in the early 20th century. So take it down. You never, know when, <laughs> you never know when it might be useful. 
Oh, you know, one of the things, Walter, that I hated um, is that I wasn't in my research. I was never able to find a recording um, of her voice. And yeah, and that has just been, you know, the, the technology was available in the latter part of her career. But to this date, no one has ever found a recording. There's no recording, but people have described her voice. Could you, before we sign off, could you just describe how how they? They would talk about um, the power and the strength of her voice. They would talk about the enunciation, um, how she. She was a soprano. She was a soprano, yes, and about um, how she was able to put such emotion into what she sang. They said sometimes that her her uh, technical skills were not the best in in certain instances, but it was overcome by the the emotion that she brought to the song. Yeah. Several of the reviews talk about power and passion in describing her her singing. And she was quite obviously a physically imposing presence on the stage. She was. With her with her costumes and what have you. Maureen, any last words for our listeners before we sign off? Well, I did want to tell you that a very famous person one time played Ciceretta, Viola Davis. When she was just out of college at Rhode Island College, they did a little play about her, and she portrayed Ciceretta. Okay. Well, Maureen D. Lee, the author of Ciceretta Jones, The Greatest Singer of Her Race, thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. I've enjoyed it so much. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. Maureen D. Lee began this biography of Ciceretta Jones because she thought, and quite rightly, that no one remembered who this great singer was. And in the process, she uncovered a whole nother world of the history of music in late 19th and early 20th century America. The story of Ciceretta Jones is a fascinating one because it chronicles changes in the history not only of the American theater and American musical stage, but it also deals with the cultural and racial issues of the times. It's in many ways an inspiring story, and in its entirety, it's an American story. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Next time on Walter Edgar's Journal, my guests will be Jeff Wilkinson, Wade Sellers, and veteran of World War II, Ted Bell. And we'll talk about his experiences in the Battle of Okinawa and the upcoming Man in the Moment special on ETV. By noon of that day, we had nobody left in the command post. My radio operator had been killed. The first sergeant had been killed. My orderly, he was killed. I was in this little excavation almost alone in my foxhole. Join me for Walter Edgar's Journal, a production of ETV Radio, Friday at noon.